Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to a very special edition of the Nyler Nine podcast. This edition is actually a recording of a talk that we put on as part of Culture Night. So on Culture Night, myself, uh, Nyler Nine and Totally Dublin uh, put on an event in the fruit and veg market in conjunction with uh, Culture Night Dublin and Dublin City Council, Department of Tourism and the Arts Council. It was called Night Moves um, and we presented a selection of DJs from uh, Dublin's music scene um, and took over the warehouse space and put on some some dance and club music. And uh, before that, though, at half four on the day, we had a discussion on club culture. And that's what you're about to hear. You're about to hear a talk uh, hosted by Michael McDermott of Totally Dublin, who was the co-producer with me on this event. Um, and on, you will hear the introductions as well. But uh, you will also hear um, the voices of uh, Ren Miano of Origins Ella, uh, Councillor Claire Bourne of the Green Party, um, Sunil Sharp of Give Us the Night, and Carly Heath, who came over from Bristol. Uh, the, she's the Nighttime Economy Advisor in Bristol. Uh, very passionate about nighttime economy and club culture. And officially, you know, the talk was really about that. It was about club culture and where we can go. I didn't want to look back. We wanted to look forward. Michael uh, steered the uh, conversation in a really interesting way, I thought. So uh, I thought I'd share that recording uh, so people could hear more about it. As I said on the podcast uh, on the last episode, there's uh, we're in a period of transition at the moment in, in Ireland in terms of the nighttime economy and understanding what that means, understanding the possibilities available to us for um, late night um, activity that isn't necessarily just clubbing, 
But, you know, from a clubbing perspective, it is does form a lot of that. And there are upcoming changes to the licensing laws being mooted and um, they could come in the coming weeks. So right now, um, there's lots of opportunities to talk about that. And you may hear in this, I think there's a conversation briefly about uh, special exemption orders, um, which Sunil perhaps is talking about here. Um, in the budget since that since came out, um, the SEO special exemption orders, uh, the cost of them were halved, so not completely scrapped like they should have been. Um, but I do I remember Sunil talking about that as well. Uh, but hopefully we will see that actually scrapped soon. That is a bit disappointing. But uh, that was halved from four hundred ten euro to two hundred five per night, uh, and not including solicitors' fees. So. There's loads to talk about here, so I'm going to let uh, Michael take over. Um, this is live from the Fruit and Veg Market, a discussion about nighttime economy and club culture in Ireland. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to the Fruit and Veg Market for uh, Night Moves, um, an event uh, which is being co-produced by uh, myself, uh, Michael McDermott from Totally Dublin, and Nyler Nine for Culture Night Dublin. Um and the first part of this evening is a talk, um, a panel discussion, as they say. And it's about um, the future of clubbing in the city and the nighttime economy. And uh, I'm joined by Sunil Sharp, an acclaimed techno DJ, and along with Robbie Kitt, is one of the driving forces behind Give Us a Night, uh, an independent volunteer group of professionals operating within the nighttime industry, campaigning for positive changes to nightlife here. Um, I've written Miano. Um, from Origins Ella, a black queer community creating exhilarating interventions in the city with an ongoing theme of rest and play and resistance. Um, I have Councillor Claire Byrne uh, from the Green Party, who's politically instrumental in the push for change from within the political system. And Carly Heath, who was appointed as Bristol's first nighttime economy advisor last year and is a first-time visitor to these shores also. So welcome, Carly, and welcome, everybody. Um, so I guess what we're looking at um, this evening is a talk about from the perspective of an activist, from the personal, from the political, and from the outsider perspective. Uh, and I think at this moment in time, and particularly with regards boat clubbing and nighttime economy in Dublin and in Ireland, um, we're at a pretty crossroads moment uh, with some big decisions to be made um, from a legislative and policy perspective and I think there's an opportunity to be grasped, which could be fundamentally transformative and wonderful for the city, uh, for young people, uh, for culture. Um, but what I want to talk about, I suppose, is getting a perspective of where we're at right now and where we go next. Um, and I will start with Sunil. And I know you've made a, a pre-budget submission. Uh, and one of those things that you've highlighted as part of it is that this century alone, there's been an 84% decrease in nightclubs. Uh, there's been no new built venues uh, in a long time. And certain counties have no type of specialist nighttime dance venue uh, at all. So I was just wondering, with that submission, what are you proposing and what are you looking for? Yeah, thanks, Michael. I mean, I think what we're really trying to do is sow some seeds in terms of cultural infrastructure. It's something that the that the governments have been very hesitant to get involved in since the days of when they invested in art centres. We don't believe that art centres are being used to their full capability. So one of the things we have asked since we relaunched properly as a fully active campaign in 2018 is that more of these spaces, more publicly owned buildings would be used for the likes of what you're putting on here tonight. 
um, that we need to see more examples of that. But what we also need is our venues that can actually sustain themselves financially, you know. Um, I don't think these buildings necessarily need to be funded by the public for events to go ahead. So I think it's very important to give venues the, the tools at the moment, especially if you're a licensed premises, the amount of money that you have to pay uh, to keep the wall from the door. You know, it's really, really tough out there and it's only going to get harder as we go into the winter. So I think our pre-sub our pre-budget submission was quite realistic, you know, and I think that's the feedback we've got from most parties as well. I think of the nine points or nine asks there, I think they're all possible, you know, but a lot of it is about reinvesting into spaces uh, that have been used for nightlife, um, investing into spaces that have the potential for nightlife, and then also putting in other, um, I guess, tools when it comes to suppressing noise, like soundproofing, you know, and I don't want to use Berlin too much as an example, but they do they do tend to be very progressive with this stuff, you know. And in Berlin, they did. And I, they weren't the first country to do it, but they're, they're definitely the, the uh, in, in Berlin, they, I think it was about three or four years ago where they brought in those grants. They didn't invest that much, actually. They invested about, I think, one million initially. We're looking for 1.5 million as a, as a nationwide fund. And I think that would be money really well spent. You know, I want to promote noise in the city. There should be more noise in the city, to be honest. But there's a lot of people that don't like noise being in the city, especially when they live right next to it. And we can understand that. So for a lot of the people that are making noise about nightlife, uh, perhaps going into the moving into the wee hours and uh, later hours in the night and just the idea of there being more nightlife and more venues opening, uh, we do need to be able to appease those groups and to be able to come up with a, something of a solution, you know? So I think there's some solutions in there to some of the problems as well, but I don't think we're looking for too much of, a, of, of an investment at the moment. And finally, just one of the things, and I, at this point now, this isn't a request anymore. This is something we expect from the governments. They have to get rid of these late licensing costs. They just have to go. It's not a request anymore. It's, it's an absolute demand and it has to happen now. It's one of the things that they can, I don't want to be taking on this the last bit about this bit, but there are a couple of things they said they couldn't do. They can't address insurance. They can't address um, en energy costs either. This is one of the things that they can address for the nighttime industry. So that's something we, we expect them to do in this, uh, in this budget. So, anyway. okay. Great. Um, thanks very much, Neil. I might um, jump to you, Claire, next, because I guess you're coming from possibly the inside uh, as a councillor and you see the machinations of government and, and you are in government. Uh, so I guess... I guess there is an understanding that we'll say policy and legislative change is a complex beast. And it has been a year since the um, delivery of the task force report on the nighttime economy. So I guess, where do you see us at right now and, and the, the frustrations and the possibilities over the next three months to three years? Thanks, Michael. Um, yeah, I do. I represent the city uh, as a Green Party councillor for the last eight years. And I suppose at a local level, my job is to try and steer the policy in the right direction. Uh, but we're also fortunate in some sense to be in government at the moment as well. Uh, but uh, my colleague, Catherine Martin, is Minister for Culture, so she has direct responsibility for this. We also have uh, the transport brief as well, which is also relative to a vibrant uh, nighttime economy. So um, that's my job. But I suppose I've been a citizen of the city for much longer <laughs> and uh, long enough to remember the good old days of Dublin when we had a really vibrant club culture and a good nighttime economy. Um, and, you know, we had a range of clubs that are no longer there anymore. I mean, we, we could list them all like Pod, Crawdaddy, 
Tivoli, the Kitchen, Twisted Pepper. Um, they were all gig venues and then light, late night club venues as well. And uh, we also had the less official clubs as well, which were like the, you know, the gaiety and we've, we've all spent our time kind of squished into Pacino's or Yukio at the end of the night. But even that's all changed in the last few years as well. For many of the re- and yeah, and the clubs on Leeson Street as well back in the day, you know. Um, but for all the reasons that Sunil has outlined eloquently, as always, you know, the, it's mostly the sort of the licensing and the legislative changes that have taken place over the last ten to fifteen years. But it is also a direct result of bad planning decisions at a local level, at a Dublin City Council level, and also at a board planola level. Um, that has, you know aided, abetted, and have actively facilitated the erosion of our club culture and our nighttime economy. Um, and whereas we used to have a really diverse offering, um, like for me, I always think about Strictly Fish and Kildare Street years ago, which had like a, you know, a house room, it had a drum and bass room, it even had a reggae room. Like that to me was Dublin in the kind of late 90s and the early, uh, the early noughties. Um, and that's just gone now. And even from a, you know, a venue perspective where, they, you know, those things used to happen in theatres and hotels and all that, and restaurants, as I said, that's all stopped now because it's just become unviable for those venues to do that from a, you know, from a licensing perspective and from an economic perspective. So we have a big job on our hands and um, things are changing, but they're changing at the snail's pace that public and civil service like to move at. Um, for me personally, I've been campaigning for a nightmare for many, many years. Um, I had a motion agreed in 2019. And I was, to be fair, I was kind of inspired by meeting with Robbie and Sneil back in 2018, I think was the first time that we met, um, where they really outlined, outlined the situation from their perspective, you know, as promoters and as musicians and DJs. Um, and it was then that we, I started thinking about what we could do at a local level. I started campaigning for a nightmare at that point. Um, and four years on, we're getting close. And the reason we're getting close now is there's, there's a number of reasons. Um, I pushed really hard to bring the like, bring Sunil into the decision making process. I don't know if you're very grateful for that because now you just share the same frustrations that I share on a daily basis. But um, but having that voice there that, you know, that the decision makers can hear directly is really, really critical. Um, as I said, in that space of time, we have, uh, our party has gone into government and I was involved in the negotiations for the culture sector of the programme for government. And I made sure that there was commitments in there to look at the nighttime economy and how we could kind of revitalise it. I mean, this was... Um, you know, we needed to do this before the pandemic. Now it's absolutely critical. I mean, the city's on life support after six o'clock at the moment. Um, so the nighttime economy task force was set up. Sunil is part of that task force, thankfully, and they came out, come up with 36 recommendations, which we're in the process of implementing at the moment. Um, so they're good recommendations. Um, it, there was a great, it was a really strong committee. Um, we've recently seen funding um, being given for pilot projects uh, around nighttime economy. Um, we're about to announce shortly in the next few weeks uh, pilot cities and towns where we will advi- finally appoint nighttime advisors and a nighttime committee um, to really actively look at the issues that need to be addressed, you know, around venues first and foremost, for, first and foremost about what time and nighttime economy, how we can you know, keep things moving after six o'clock and move away from this at the moment. We have this culture where you come into the city to work or shop and then you leave or maybe get a bite to eat and, eat and then you leave. 
Um, so there's a huge piece of work to be done around that, but I feel like we're finally making some progress, although it has taken a very long time. Um, yeah, I'll get back to you on that in, in a minute. I, I wanted to um, speak to you next, Rain, and, and about your own kind of personal experience of nighttime culture and the interventions that you're trying to do and what your, yeah, your own personal experiences are. I guess, um, well, when we sort of started in 2018, Origins Ella, uh, it was like a black queer organization, which is like my MO <laughs> at, the, at the start and beginning and ending of everything is just like black queer joy and sort of amplifying that. Um, and I kind of went into DJing a little bit through that just because we were like, okay, we've seen this model of like Babes London and like Pussy Palace working in London. And I would find a lot of myself and my friends, we'd go over to London, enjoy these nights and then come back to Dublin. But have, I guess, when you think of like black nights, it's usually like R&B or hip hop. And so I then was like, right, be the change you want to see. So I, I started DJing. <laughs> and uh, what I'd find is when I would DJ in like more se like re like secular, regular, like sort of club spaces, what would end up happening is the audience that would come would sort of see my face on the poster and expect it to be R&B and hip hop. And then I'd come out with like house music or like hard techno and they'd be totally like, what the fuck? <laughs> um, and then I guess what then ended up happening is a sort of silo started happening where I would really want like black queer techno music and was finding that there wasn't that sort of space being given and the people that were sort of consuming me or consuming the, the things that I was like offering also expected something different, like expected it to be like R&B and hip hop again. So we did a series of workshops, like DJ workshops, and was just like, what style do you want to DJ in? And then from there, we sort of were like, okay, how do we create, because I guess working within like community and a minoritized community, what ends up happening is there, you're dealing with emotions a lot. You're dealing with like people's trauma a lot. And then trying to carve out a space for that trauma to be heard and for people not to be re-traumatized in a club space because, you know, I think there's something very healing about being in, like, a, a sort of an all, like, black queer club space, right? And so we kind of went around to a few different venues trying to get them to, I guess, let us do a sort of nearly like a closed-door policy um, and I think we were talking earlier about like security and how security is like the sort of first point of contact. And if the first point of contact you're getting is, you know, a security being like, who, what are you here for? Da, da, da. So the first, I guess, like go back 2019, the first like club night we did, we actually ended up losing like 300 people weren't able to come in. And we were like, why is it so quiet? We're so meant to be sold out, but it was due to racism and the security guard sort of turning people away so I guess when I'm sort of like my sort of like battle at the moment is trying to diversify like all different spaces and so a lot of the time we end up having a lot of yeah a lot of time spent uh sort of conversating with the venue and being like okay you, you know what why does the mat like why do you need to come into the space or what like a lot of them would be sort of uncomfortable to give us the space and not let like their, their regulars in. 
Um, so that's sort of, I guess, a, an ongoing battle. And then also with that, the people that would usually want to go to those spaces, we have the housing crisis. And so like you have the community being pushed further and further and further away to access like the club. So there is that sort of pl- that plays into it as well. Um, but it is getting better like in terms of that that conversation seems easier to have now post BLM um, and post the, I guess, realization of white people realizing they're white. <laughs> and yeah, I guess, I guess it's, it's more tangible for them. And unfortunately, a lot of the time I do have to give them examples that have happened in the UK and that sort of irks me still because I'm like, where? No, I mean, you know, like, let's be real, like, we are still quite a new country. And I think if we're always constantly looking over to the other side, then what we're replicating is something that maybe doesn't always fit this land. And so that can be a little bit frustrating as well, because I d- there's so much, um, there's so much possibilities in being a new country. And, you know, I'm not saying that we didn't exist before that, of course, Ireland existed, but this version of Ireland is, um, it's exciting. And I'm like, let's let's do it our way. <laughs> Brilliant. Speaking of the other side then, Carly, first of all, maybe a little bit of a potted history of yourself, if that's possible, and then possibly uh, thoughts or observations on what you've heard to date here, and then what's, what you've been doing and, what, and how progressive Bristol is in many regards. Yeah, um, thanks. So um, I'm Carly Heath. I'm the Nighttime Economy Advisor uh, in Bristol, I feel constantly grateful that I live in Bristol and we're able to um, do what we do as a nighttime community. Um, I moved there in 2004. I I mean, I put my first party on when I was 13, so I've kind of always existed in nightlife. When I moved to Bristol, I didn't like paying to get in, so I started flyering and I'd stand outside at three o'clock in the morning for about 10 years of my life in all weathers, all times a day, standing outside, um, handing out flyers for all of the parties that are across the city. And in that time, we've seen the same. We've seen lots of venues close. We have lots of small and micro venues. I think our biggest venue is only 3,000 capacity when they expand to their biggest venue. Most of them are somewhere around 200, 300, 400 capacity. So they're still quite compact and quite um, small. I've put on thousands of parties in my time from dubstep to jungle to ghetto tech, duke, soca, like all sorts of underground dance music mostly. But I've also worked in some of the biggest venues in the city from doing folk and classical and kind of all the kind of music that I wasn't necessarily into, but was always keen to promote because I, I see us as nighttime providers. We set the tone, we set the mood, you know, um, when you're not at work, you're in the nighttime economy. Like the nighttime economy is so essential for cohesions in cities. It's where we come together as a community. It's where we go to see people that are not people that we work with. It's like, it's not a transactional relationship. Do you know what I mean? It's where we get to actually come together and explore ourselves and enjoy ourselves. And it's really vital for a city to be able to have that personality and be able to connect with the other people that live within your environment. Um, Bristol, there's only three of us in the country, in the UK, as a nighttime advisor. There's Amy LeMay in London. There's me in Bristol, and Sasha Lord in Manchester. And it's quite a new movement, really. Even globally, there's only about 50 of us in the world. Um, and really, I see my job as trying to look after the workforce and trying to actually elevate what the nighttime economy is actually about. So 
I have a broader definition on the nighttime economy. I don't just see it as pubs, clubs, bars, restaurants, students falling out of kebab shops at three o'clock in the morning, <laughs> antisocial behaviour. Um, you know, the city doesn't stop at six o'clock or the city shouldn't stop at six o'clock. Um, you know, you should be able to uh, navigate 24 hours a day within the city. So in a city like Bristol... 30% of our population work from 6pm to 6am, and that's if you include health and social care, transportation, um, 24-hour call centres, late-night retail. You know, people work after dark, and if, you're, um, if your lunch break is at 1 o'clock in the morning, you should be able to get a good, decent meal. You know, you, shouldn't be, you should have mental health provision if you're a nighttime worker. You should be able to get to work safely. You shouldn't have to deal with things like sexual harassment when you're working behind a bar. You know, like we, we really actually, there's a lot of things that nighttime workers have to suffer and have to kind of deal with. And my job really is to kind of elevate what it is that we're about, elevate our purpose and make sure that we are looked after as, as, um, as nighttime providers. So some of the work that I've been doing in Bristol, I've only been there for, since April last year. Um, we've launched a citywide spiking campaign. Not to like try and spite people, obviously, that would be a bit crap, but um, we recognise that it's a problem that's massively un like under-talked about. It's not reported as much as it should be um, and it, not taken seriously by the police. So we came together as a partnership amongst... We're in 157 venues now that are working in this spiking campaign. Every single venue in Bristol has got testing kits behind the bar. So if you think your drink's been spiked, you can go to the bar. They'll test it there and then to see whether there's anything in it. We're also working with the police. They've got urine testing kits to help them do their early triaging work. And um, we've trained, you know, 157 bars worth of workers to look out for people that might be in a vulnerable situation. That's one of those sorts of things that if you have something like a nighttime advisor, you can collaborate as a city to actually look after your patrons and show that we can be responsible operators. We can work in a way that actually looks after the hearts and minds of, our, um, of the people that come to enjoy us. Um, We've also launched a women's safety charter and uh, same sort of thing, getting all the venues to, to sign up. I've got an ambition to train a thousand nighttime workers in spotting sexual harassment inside their venues, bystander training, knowing how to deal with it and working within that level of intersectionality when harassment happens to you. So if you're a queer person, person of colour, um, have got different access needs, all of those kinds of things, how does harassment impact on you on top of that and how can we create safer spaces across the city where we actually have, we have zero, zero tolerance to those sorts of behaviors so I, I fully believe that the nighttime is something to be celebrated and something that we can work together to solve some of the more problematic issues in our society and look after people in that same way you know you should be able to let your hair down after dark and um um, yeah. yeah, and and one thing you you told me about last night, which was just sounded quite obvious, but so progressive as well. Uh, and I know, for example, there was a big hoo ha recently here in relation to one of our big festivals, the Electric Picnic, for the first time ever having a drug testing facility for people at the festival. But in Bristol, it's not alone at venues, but you have a monthly place where people can go in and just test their drugs. But also yeah. the, the spill off yeah. elements of that, which are so vital. Yeah, so we have we have the loop um, in we have the loop in Bristol, which is a national nationally recognised drug checking service run by the excellent Fiona Meesham, who's a doctor out of uh, Liverpool University, and we so we have a monthly drugs checking service. So for any kind of drugs that you might have, you can go and drop off a sample of them. They will check them to see what 
whether you've been sold what you think you've been sold. Nine times out of 10, actually, there's some really nasty things that have been put into the mix of these drugs. And people are taking, we found things with plaster of Paris in them. People are thinking that they're taking one thing and they're taking something else entirely. Um, but when people bring these um, samples of their recreational drugs through the um, drugs checking service, it's often the first time they've ever had a conversation with a drugs professional about their usage, about their, about their habits, whether they're on antidepressants, the, the size and weight and age they might be, whether they uh, take insulin, for example, how those drugs might then impact and how can they be taking, if they choose to take recreational drugs, what is a safe dosage? If something goes wrong, what should they do? You know, and it genuinely saves lives. Like we're, we're, we are fortunate that we have a harm reduction strategy from outer Bristol City Council. Not every local authority has that. We've got a fairly progressive police force that wants to come from a harm reduction perspective. Not every police force in the UK is like that. I, I, I say quite regularly that West is best and I definitely feel like that amongst, Brist amongst the uh, country that I live in. But I would, I'm a huge advocate for harm reduction. You know, There's something that we can do. We can be part of the solution. We're not part of the problem. We can solve these issues collectively and together and responsibly. Oh, and I'm chilly, so I'm shivery. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And, and just, I suppose, in terms of what you've heard so far from what you're hearing about Dublin and where we're at, are you kind of like aghast, basically? Yeah, I'm actually really shocked to find out that it's so restrictive here. You know, there's, there's cities, um, and, and you're not the only city that's done this. Like, Bogota in Spain did a really similar thing. They were so heavy-handed on their nighttime economy that they actually managed to completely remove late-night culture from the city, and they are really struggling to inject it back in because when you lose this energy and you lose this culture, it's really hard to get it back. You know, you've got to protect these spaces at all costs and try and... I see our job as nighttime governors as cultural gardeners, right? So we, we kind of like lay the seedbeds. Us that work... I mean, I work for the local authority in a similar kind of way, although I'm not elected. Um, we are cultural gardeners. We lay the seedbed. It's not up to, to us to design what creativity goes into those spaces, but we have to make sure that those environments are available for, for creatives to come in and flourish and grow. You know, we can't, like, when we say culture, who's culture? Who gets to decide what culture is? Culture's ordinary. Culture's every day. It belongs to the people. And we should create an environment where people can just live their lives and be their fullest selves. And, and do you guys think um, that the idea that, that club culture in itself has been somewhat demonized uh, as and mixed up with public order offences, and there's this major concern that there's many ills within the city, uh, but it's an easy, maybe low-hanging fruit to kind of go, oh, you know what, there'll be public disorder. People will lose the run of themselves. They'll go crazy. It'll, you know, it'll, there's this fear factor rather than this celebration. So the mindset has to change dramatically, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think there's a lot more other places to look in at the moment. I mean, we're seeing people being stabbed in spa shops. I mean, we're seeing Garda cars being rammed. I mean, there's other reasons for that as well. There's a lot of things going on in Dublin at the moment, and they're happening nowhere near a music event or a club, you know. So um, I'm worried about a lot of other things in Dublin now than I am any kind of... Uh, well, there are obviously issues, um, that, and you mentioned some of them even in relation to spiking as well and things that we have to be ultra vigilant of, you know, and have to ensure that staff have the right training and that it's consistent across the board, you know, that it's not just some venues that are deciding they want to sign up to something like that. And I 
would believe quite strongly that that should be um, that that should be written into your licensing commitments as well. Um, I don't think it should be some of the more progressive-minded uh, venues and venues that actually care that do it, and others can kind of just disregard that, you know. So, yeah. Um, sorry, was there any more to? to no, uh, no. I think it was it was one of those things. I think where it's kind of where it feels at some regards that it's no city for young people, you know, and that's a big that's a big issue, right? It's it's like it feels like there is a generation just on so many levels feel like they're isolated, they're left behind, they're priced out of it, they've nothing to go to. Well, we talked about this the other day in the Arts SBC, and I described myself as being a raver at heart. I, and, and being a raver, you know, I, I, that'll never change. And, I, you know, I was referring to you as well, Claire, you're, you're a, ra- a raver at heart and, and will go out to events if you're able to, you know. But I just think um, from my perspective and from anyone that's involved in the campaign, you know, I'm the oldest involved in the campaign now. But one thing I've always had to check myself with, and it's natural if I'm in the environment of DJing and stuff as well, that I'm around people that are younger than me on a weekly basis. I teach young people as well about DJing um, and I've always stayed young minded. And I think that's something that particularly those who work in local authorities at a management level needs to actually ask themselves about. And I mean, the other thing as well is, is some of these, some of these gentlemen have kids themselves who also go out and socialize in the city. Um, and I sometimes kind of wonder how much they really think about that and analyze that and, analyze what they're giving back to other people who are of a similar age of their kids, you know? So um, I think you made a great point there, Carly, about when nightlife, healthy nightlife kind of dries up, it's very, it's very hard to re-energize the city and bring back what was there. And I sometimes feel, I mean, there's a number of kind of cultural shifts we're going to have to go through here. Um, I think there is a general kind of mindset when it comes to nightlife. It, it, it's kind of almost like a trivial matter or issue or topic, and it's almost belittled as well. And a lot of Irish people kind of laugh off the idea of nightlife as well, you know, when for a lot of us, it's it's actually the industry that we work in, you know. Um, I mean, I saw one particular official that was um, that was cutting ribbons in a in a in a new tech company's building that was not so long ago, our last hope as a, as a nightclub in the city, you know, that kind of stuff infuriates me, you know, and it just shows how, how distant, um, and I suppose isolated in, in, in their thinking, uh, that, that a lot of officials and people who essentially run Dublin are when it comes to nightlife and our industry, just because our industry doesn't generate as much as some of those, um, I think as well, we've spoken a lot about multi-purpose venues and multi-use venues. I mean, a great example of the opposite of that in the city right now are, are, is, is the Docklands and the amount of office buildings that there are down there. What does that give back to the city? You know, it really, okay, it gives, we, we do generate some money through that part of the city for sure, but um, through our tax take, et cetera. But those are ghost towns at night and what they've given back to local communities is literally zilch. I, I do want, you know, I don't want to mention too many places by name, but there are also other buildings that have been built in the city that have given nothing back to the city. These are event spaces that can hold thousands of people, you know, and they're not, they're not open to the public, you know. And I think further down the line, one of the things we'll be pushing for is for the culture depart- department to be more involved in the negotiations when the, when the leases, when the leases are actually renegotiated on some of these buildings, because there has to be more access to space for the public. Public and for organizers, not just a big few promoters to be able to put on events and the kind of events that people want to see in the cities. Um, 
do you have any anything to add on that? Like, for example, Claire, from from your perspective, um, what are the I guess the frustrations as well? So it's like a lot of it. It it, it seems like at one level when you listen to Carly speaking about the fact that they have a three thousand capacity venue for a city that has five hundred thousand people, Dublin. I don't know. We don't have anything anymore. Basically, I don't know if six hundred is the max capacity of any club venue. So. It feels, at one level, when you're listening to the story of Bristol at the moment, it's like, wow, this sounds so easy and straightforward and forward-thinking and progressive. And, and here it's like we're tied up in ribbons by frustrations. And is it, I guess, um, is it the overwhelming complexity? Is it the legislative framework that needs to come up to speed? Like, there's, there's many movable parts in this, I guess. And there's also, I guess, vested interests, perhaps, that... that that finds that, look, you know, it's, it's good as it is. It suits them. It doesn't necessarily, you know, don't rock the boat because this, this could take a piece of their pie. Where, where, what's your take on this? Well, firstly, just, we're going to second Carly over to Dublin. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's not always cold. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, look, I ju- yeah, it's... I suppose for many, many years, there was an absence of any sort of policy or policy framework, first and foremost, um, I feel anyway, and particularly a local level. And I have dedicated an awful lot of my time uh, trying to weave and stitch policy changes into through strategic policy committees um, and through the development plan, I suppose, most recently, um, also depending on you know, the advocates like Sunil and Robbie and everybody else and the submissions that they make as well. But, you know, we have in the new city development plan started to include things like multi-purpose venues at a national level as well, um, soundproofing and new venues, looking at how we can replace that loss of venues that we've had through those bad planning decisions that where we've seen, you know, hotels being built where clubs used to be but even though hotels used to have clubs in them and they're not replacing that space, it's lost at the same time. Um, so having that policy in there now is a really good starting point. It's not always adhered to, as we well know. Um, but we are seeing some changes. Like, And I'll give one example um, in terms of general, more general cultural use, but is, is uh, the Poolbeg West development, which still isn't built, obviously. But um, as part of that... Uh, their planning permission has um, an agreement that they have to provide 10% or 5% cultural, creative and community space, right? Now, there will be 40 artist studios as part of that. But what they're doing is building a meanwhile use space while they build the rest of, which is it's essentially going to be a new village within the city. And that meanwhile use space will have a town hall, which will potentially be able to be used for nighttime event, uh, nighttime activities as well, right? Now, that's a bit out of town, obviously. This space that we're sitting in at the moment will eventually be an active market again. But we have to make sure that we, you know, stitch it into the agreements that it has to be considered as a late night venue or a nighttime venue as well. Um, for all sorts of different purposes for, you know, what's happening here tonight, which is brilliant and it's great to, to do this. Meanwhile, use for uh, from an experimentation perspective so we can see that it actually works and it isn't filled with barriers and challenges. That is the sort of immediate uh, mindset that you're met with when you try and raise these issues. 
Um, and and it is looking at uh, it is looking at the venues that we have already as well, um, and making it easier because I am really conscious. Of, like, and it's lovely to do events in galleries and all of that. Like, that's great, and it's lovely to have that. But as you were saying earlier, like that's so much of your time and energy, and that you're probably not getting paid for negotiating that with the venue owners. So we have to make that process much more simplified and much easier for the promoters and performers. Um, but we also need the dedicated spaces as well. Um, and, uh, and I do fear for the city that we've run out of space, you know, so we probably will be looking up, looking at what we have and anything new that's built has to be sort of multi-purpose and, uh, and looking at, you know, what it's doing from nine o'clock in the morning till nine o'clock the next morning, you know? Um, and that's really important, not just from, you know, clubbing perspective, but also from a, a family perspective. Like, I mean, one, you know, I've got small kids and one of my core motivators is that my biggest fear is that they'll end up only ever having coppers to go to when they're older. But uh, no offense to anyone goes coppers, but not my cup, not my cup of tea. But, uh, but also at the moment, like I want to be able to bring them into town at night time and have stuff to go to instead of like, yes, we have tonight culture night and that's amazing, you know, but it's one night a year. It should be like that seven days a week, you know, uh, or six days, even a week, whatever, you know, 365 days a year. And that's what we're really trying to do from a policy and a legislative piece to, to provide that sort of, um, that nighttime offering that has something for everybody, but also to ensure that it's safe. So there are so many moving pieces to this. So there's the justice piece that we've just spoken about. There's the justice piece from a safety perspective. And an unsocialized nighttime city is an unsafe city. And we've seen that in the last couple of years. And that needs to be addressed very immediately. There's the transport piece that I mentioned as well. It's like people being able to, you mentioned the fact that people are being pushed out of the city in terms of living there. We have to make sure people can get in and out easy. We are doing that. We have more 24-hour bus services now. We've reduced the fares on the night link. And now if you're between 19 and 24, it's 120 to get in and out in the night link now, which is so much cheaper than a taxi. We obviously still need more taxis as well. Um, we also, it's a, there's a public realm piece in this as well. It's like, you know, College Green, for example. For me, you know, when that gets pedestrianized, that also, like the, the original, the early stage visioning exercises around that were very much focused on it being that a chameleon space that can inst like really easily transform from a daytime space to a nighttime space. Or, and it could be two or three different things that happen, you know, it could be daytime, then nighttime restaurants, markets, and then gigs, you know, outdoor gigs as well. Um, um, and, and then there's, oh, sorry, from the justice piece as well, there's the licensing changes that desperately need to happen. And the sale of alcohol bill will hopefully be coming to cabinet after the budget next week in the next coming weeks. And, you know, there's been a very rigorous consultation process on that. And hopefully we will see the changes that we need to bring Dublin, you know, turn Dublin into your Euro European city, you know? Um, I mean, we're not unique. I, like I was in Lisbon, I lived in Lisbon 25 years ago, an amazing club scene. And I was there recently and I was kind of walking down the street and I saw a club that used to be open and it's also closed now. And I was kind of like, okay, this isn't just happening here. Um, but, you know, we, we, need, we need a better offering. We need a better offering for the people who live here, first and foremost. We also need a better offering for the people who, who visit here as well, yeah. you know? Because at the moment, it's like, what, what are they here for? Like, what are they going to do? Take a tour about the hotels in the city and be like, here doth lie a former brilliant club that's no longer here because, you know, Fault Ireland decided we needed X amount of bedrooms, you know? But it's just, it's so, 
I, things things are changing. Like they oh. are changing. I, it's slow, but I do feel it, and I think there is a public sentiment out there in Ireland. There is a pressure to change. Um, you know, and as, like it's and it's less for for my generation now. I don't get out that much, unfortunately, anymore. But it is for the younger people because I do like I I feel sorry for them because like what what's for them in Dublin after six p.m. at night? You know. And 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 Ren, I think one thing is as well as is, is kind of the sense of a toolkit for people looking to access the city and access public spaces, and how important that would be for you. And everything seems to be you're starting from scratch all the time. For yeah. example, tonight has resulted in a, in a huge event management plan being created for here. Mm-hmm. And you just hope that if something else is being accessed, that they can benefit from what we've done. And so that you're not going back repeating the same steps, mm-hmm. that, there's, that everybody's adding to something and that everybody's adding to their insights and experiences. And that, that doesn't seem to be available, but that would be incredibly beneficial for, for people trying to navigate the world of nighttime economy and clubbing. Yeah, absolutely. I think also people approach organizing in such a different way. Like not everyone is going to come to it understanding public liability insurance or understanding, you know, um, that you can maybe pick your own security for different venues. Um, And I I think also just to touch back on like this younger, younger generation, (laughs) I'm not that young, Um, but like I've lost a lot of friends to like other cities one of yours being, um, but take them. They're great. They're great people. Um, but I want them to come back and you want people to have something to come back to, not know Carol's gift shop. <laughs> like, you know, a friend visited recently and he was like, okay, where's good to go? And I was like, I genuinely don't know. Like I gen, I don't know. I, there's nothing. It was a Tuesday night. I couldn't mention one thing. I mean, we were lucky that Fringe Festival was happening, and that was sort of you know there's different shows, but that's not. Even though it feeds into night nighttime culture and the nighttime economy, it's not. It's not year round. You know, it's it's a certain time of the year, and like even with with the la- I think with COVID being a big thing, I know we're all really sick of the c word, but people's mental health is just in dire, like dire need of people need joy. And there's been a really big lack of joy and play and, and hopefulness. And I think that's also a result of, again, I'm going to go back to BLM, but that's also a result of like all these sort of social big pushes, you know, Mm. repeal. Yes. Equality. One great thing that you can look back on that is like, okay, we have changed and we have been able to gather ourselves around together and, and, and push, but I think people are, are re- from what I'm feeling from the people I work with, we're tired. Like we're, we're exhausted. You know, yeah. you're just, we're like really ha- hanging on to, to every little piece of joy we can and trying to make it last. But if I'm, and sometimes I feel like I'm moving from a really like space of delusion, right? Where I'm going to a venue and saying, we need a closed space. We need to do an event like this type of sort of, this is our ethos where we always need like, you know, gender neutral bathrooms. We need the space to be accessible. And when you're looking for those two things, that already discounts so many spaces that we don't have. So, and then, I, you know, I sort of sometimes feel sort of the catch 22 is you're asking 
for space when you're nearly like, oh no, this is like a bit of a push because do we even have the space to to then ask to make a sub? Like it's the sub, what I feel is like the subcultures right now are really suffering as well. I mean, there's great things happening like temporary pleasures, club comfort. They're able to really push the dialogue in terms of like queer clubbing culture, but that can only go so far. And what I feel is like from being a minority within a minority within a minority is that it's just, you're getting pushed further and further back and having to have those conversations nearly again. And it feel it feels like it's pre BLM conversations that haven't carried on because we had that big gap with COVID where a lot of the sort of diversity and inclusion things weren't able to be properly carried out and carried through right? It's all like on social media, but then when you ask for in real life space and you're here in real life being like, this is what it looks like to turn up or to share space. How does that, how does that carry over? So it is nearly like you feel like you're constantly restarting. Um, So yeah. (laughs) And I think one of the, one of the ambitions with tonight that we'd originally hoped and, and, and still hopefully will achieve, even though it's turned into a ticketed event due to demand with like a wait list of 2,000 people. So it kind of gives you an ind- indication of how much hunger there is. But one thing was that it would, that would people would, would flow through the building like they do on Culture Night. It's alcohol-free. They would come in and experience it. And the dream was that people that don't go to clubs, that don't know what club culture is like, that this bogeyman would be taken away and they would be, you know what, I was in this space and it wasn't all that bad. And now I think I know what clubbing is about because I think that's the achievement. And that was something that we certainly set out with this night to want to achieve and hopefully will to, to a certain extent still, but not necessarily to the ambition that we originally intended, was that this was never to be aimed for people that were into club culture, but more people that were curious about club culture and also would see that it's actually, you know, an amazing communal experience. And also some people hate it, whatever the case, you know, but that they would at the very least walk through the door and pique their curiosity and at least feel that, you know, they would turn their ignorance and fear into something that was a little bit more progressive with understanding. Um, yeah, I mean, I think one of the things, is this on? Um, I think one of the things as well we've never really been able to do in Dublin or indeed Ireland is explore buildings like this for dance music, for electronic music. I mean, these types of buildings can come in all shapes and sizes. And I think we're, I mean, I don't want to say we're lucky to be in this space, but there's not many spaces like this in the city. And we probably do have to be realistic about how much space like this can deliver. What I think will be good in this space when they do develop it as a market will be to build a venue within the space. So a kind of an all-purpose event space Maybe they might want to monetize it with conferences or something like that um, and let the delegates suck it up when it actually smells a drink the next day. Do you know what I mean? We should have more spaces like that, not these completely sanitized spaces that are only for people in suits. You know, we should be able to share event spaces. So whatever that new type of event space will be, I think they could put one in here. I don't know how, how big it would need to be. Um, whether it be 500 to 1,000 capacity, you could definitely fit, I don't know what you can fit in here, two or 3,000 3, maybe, more? I don't know. It's got yeah. a bigger footprint. Sorry, okay. I yeah, ended yeah. up already. <laughs> probably, yeah, sorry, probably about, I don't know, what would you reckon it would be? I mean, if if this, um, yeah, if this place didn't right. have all the stuff in, you could easily yeah. fit like, I don't know, eight, 10,000 in, would I you? reckon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, it's, yeah. it's got a bigger footprint also, in the three arena, well, shit, the space. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah sorry, I want to say something today, about, maybe. you keep talking about meanwhile use and, and this being a meanwhile use. Now, that's not the that's not the definition I would give to meanwhile use. This is a temporary event. 
It's a one-time chance. Well, temp- it's a taster. Yeah, well, when temporary, you're talking about culture, like culture's ordinary and culture's use. every day, and it's not something to be sampled once mm. and go, oh, I went raving one night and it yeah. wasn't, it was really interesting. You should be able to go on a Tuesday, like the best nights happen midweek, mid-week yeah. you know, yeah. like it's where the experimentation happens. It's where the innovation happens. Mm. Like when we talk about it as a culture, because culture is communities coming together to create art, right? And there needs to be space in the city to be able to do that. Meanwhile, used to me, we've got meanwhile use venues in Bristol that are doing some fantastic things. And they, they're, they're buildings that are earmarked to be knocked down and earmarked to be redeveloped. And we give them over to culture for three years and mm. say, well, do whatever you want in this space. And they turn a dead area into something that's really vibrant and really thriving. And by the time the developers eventually knock the building down and put the, put the front student flats normally up, you, you've got hotels we've got student flats we have those too and <laughs> um, um, by the time they by the time they go up the whole area the personality of the area has changed culture can be a driver for that innovation mm. a driver for that energy and it and it should be something to be celebrated in in relation to meanwhile use we just don't have a fast and dynamic enough policy here in the city and we were talking a lot about meanwhile use and we were trying to push it a lot at a local level and with the council, I sometimes feel now, meanwhile use, it's, it's a great way to say, yeah, we'll do something with it for a while. But I think still in Dublin, we spend too much time talking about it and squabbling over, oh, is it temporary use? Is it meanwhile use? What is it? We'll look into it. Let's do a, let's do a working group about it. And it's not really going anywhere. So just to follow on, just to finish the point I was going to make about spaces like this, I mean... I, I, I've said it a little bit recently. We've lost nightlife in the suburbs. There's no dance venues in suburbs. Uh, if you're an operator in the city centre, you'd be hard-pressed to find a space to put a nightclub. Now, I'm, I'm being told this by operators, people who are ready to open venues, and a, a licensing solicitor as well, who was saying, if you're talking to somebody from DCC, ask them where we're meant to open a venue. Because when we change the licensing laws as well, it's very important that... Uh, that our planning rules speak to these to these new licensing laws as well. So if we've no access to to dancing and to spaces in suburbs or in the city, where do we go to then? And this is probably one of the. It's definitely not one of the neglected areas of the development plan, but it's maybe something where we're not seeing clear enough openings in terms of zoning and spaces where we can access buildings like this or other types of you know factories or warehouse spaces, industrial buildings. Um, and I guess the point I was trying to make from a music point of view, from a creative point of view, in terms of even having a, a Dublin sound or people that actually kind of distill their own particular sound. I mean, when you go to, I made this, I was doing a talk yesterday up in the Magnet as well. And I remember one of the places that I played in the most in the early years of traveling was uh, Slovakia. And we were regularly playing in, in, in buildings like this, our old nuclear bunkers. And, you know, they actually developed their own quite kind of uh, industrial kind of uh, drum heavy kind of rhythmic style of techno. And, um, and I mean, I still play a lot of those records, but I remember going in there. I actually, it rubbed off on me a little bit more in terms of my, like how it inspired me when I was on the dance floor. And I was just like, they have something special here you know and it's same with bristol as well i mean there's uh, many cities have their own sound and i've been asked about this before you know we could have a range of sounds as well but again we've never been able to explore these buildings as much as we as we could and should be able to you know and i think that's something very i want to end this on a positive note from in terms of my i am i spend a lot of time complaining and giving out and telling people we need to do this we need to do that i'm very 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 positive about the future and what can come over the next five five years you know i think there's there's openings we're beginning to get people to 
really listen, not just listen for five minutes, but actually really listen to the point we, we haven't given up and we're telling them we need spaces and we need the tools to be able to offer the type of nightlife and spaces that we need. And it feels like they're People are trying to do this for us. And, and we've waited this long and we're at a tipping point. So it is crucial that we just get it right. You know, there's no point having a halfway house solution within three months. When Even if we were told in this, you know, in a year's time, you will have a foolproof solution that's really going to address this issue. We've waited long enough. We could wait that long. So it's, it, how crucial is it that we actually nail it this time? Because, you know... I, it I feels disagree. like it's a once-in-a-lifetime don't, opportunity. Don't let, don't let perfect be the enemy of progress. Like, persistence beats resistance, right? You've got to just, like, just, just crack on with it. If, you, if, the, the, if the political will is there, if it's possible to actually create some of these spaces, whether they're meanwhile use or whether that you just test a couple of, um, um, couple of venues that can get, push those licenses a little bit later you know, actually just start experimenting. You know, you don't wait for the perfect plan to be to land in the city and say, well, here is your zone and here is a... Just give people the opportunity and the culture will come. People will do it because, they, they, you know, people like going out and dancing. Right. Um, we might have time for one or two questions. If, is there anybody with a question for anybody in the panel? Or any hot take? Here we go. One second, I'll just bring over the mic. Do you want to see the end of special exemption orders? Or oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes. They should yeah. be gone now. I mean, I'd, I'd happily escort them out of wherever they need to be taken from and destroyed. They should never, it should <laughs> never have been, I, I can, I'll come up with many analogies of how I'd love to destroy that system and get rid of it. And we've been told it's on the way out. It has to go. It's an oppressive system. I mean, for, for the reasons you were talking about in terms of lack of spaces and not being able to do something, you know, and just be able to put on an event, that's one of the biggest barriers to put, putting on events because most organizers are only, especially if it's late night, because they're obviously for so-called late night um, events, uh, most venues now, and with the amount of overheads they have, it ha they literally have to be selling out or coming very close to it in order for them to want to purchase uh, a special exemption order. So, I mean, you should get a license, go to court once a year. And the other thing about the special exemptions as well, which I think is a really nasty system, this is the government trying to profit off the process of deciding whether you're a, a, a fit um uh, operator in terms of your, that your venue's above board, that you're, you're a, a, an upstanding citizen and you're the right person to run a venue. That's what you should be going to court for. It's a, it should be a once a year processing slash court fee. That's where it should begin and end. And if people misbehave and are summoned to court, that's another conversation. But that it should be the system. And they should not be trying to profit off every night that you have to open per year, to, uh, per, uh, per year during the year, which sometimes can be up to 300 nights um, a year for some venues. Some, some places can afford it, but most venues can't anymore. And that system needs to go. And it will pay back. I mean, just and I don't want to bore you too much about this, but like three quarters of that, this is essentially to prop up the court service. This is to pay to fund the court service. We take in roughly 14.5 million in SEOs a year, which isn't that much. Three quarters of that goes to fund the court service. Why should, any, why should our industry, our sector, our community, our scene, these venues have to fund the court service? Why is it our job? There's plenty of other industries that could, that could you know, put up money if it really needs to be put up. But we shouldn't have to pay that anymore. And that should be scratched. ASAP. I mean, after the coming budget and, and never come back. So. That's right. Um, Claire? Yeah, just to... 
just I wholeheartedly agree with you, obviously. But just I suppose just on that, and and obviously, uh, perfection is the enemy of progress, as we all know. And it is important that we get this right. And while there are many, there's planning challenges, and there's like, the long list of challenges that we've discussed. But um, one that can't, one that will be addressed shortly is the licensing challenges. And, you know, I mean, we've gone, for, I remember the days where you, you know, you were basically force fed chicken chips and gravy just to be able to dance till two in the morning. But, you know, but the, the changes subsequently have absolutely killed any opportunity to dance. And so that bill will hopefully be uh, coming into the houses shortly. And so I guess my, my ask is that you as citizens um, engage in that process because, I mean, I haven't seen it, obviously, but there are opportunities for amendments. So please contact your TDs, senators, anyone who sits on the relevant committees and make sure that it is the, that we do get it right this time, that we get our licensing uh, set up in such a way that it supports culture, that it supports a nighttime economy, that it supports society, that, you know, puts a real value on the contribution that the nighttime economy makes and that culture makes to society, um, you know, both from a social and economic perspective. But um, but that to me is probably a really critical and, and, and one of the most imminent pieces of this very vast puzzle. Um, that we have an opportunity to get right in the coming months. So, great. Um, any one final question? Anybody in the floor? Oh yeah, Billy. One second. Come over here and grab a mic. This is Billy. Who'll be playing for you guys in a few minutes? <laughs> I just want to follow on from you getting it right. Fuck getting it right. Just get it moving. That's my like. Just it needs to move now. It needs. Kids are suffering because there's nowhere to go and meet each other. I know I'm partisan because I'm involved in this. But human nature has a primordial need to meet each other and dance. There's fucking no way to do it. You know, so whatever about getting it right, it's going to happen either way. Whether there's legislation, whether there, you can do it in nice spaces that are shiny. Kids are going out to, look, we've been doing it for years, going to raves. They're going to carry on doing it. So fuck getting it right. You know what I mean? Um, all right, and any final? Oh, yeah. Okay, Willie, um, one second. Here we go. Sorry, I'm being cheeky. I arrived at the very end of the discussion. I think for anybody who cares about this, it's where you put your energy. And I think tweeting that you're pissed off or putting it on social media is not a good use of that energy. What we've learned, I work in theatre from the National Campaign for the Arts, that if you speak to your politicians, you're, you're the, the voter in their constituency. It's very powerful. And probably if you speak to your politicians, they may never have heard from somebody with that issue before. And whatever about individual deputies, none of the parties are really good at this. And actually, the party that's most popular with young people is not particularly good at this. So what you have to do is put your energies in the right place and speak to the politicians and tell them that this is something that you care about and that you have a vote, particularly national legislators, but also local councillors. On that note, I'd like to thank Sunil, Ren, Claire and Carly. I'd also like to thank the Arts Council, Dublin City Council and the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, <laughs> Gaeltacht, Sport and Media for making Night Moves possible, which is an event, as I said, that we've organized through Totally Dublin and Nile or Nine. I'd like to thank, I'd like to thank the security. I'd like to thank Davis Events, Lightscapes, who are doing the visuals, all the DJs and collectives as part of the scene here who'll be performing for you tonight. Uh, I'd like to thank Myrna O'Sullivan, who's been an absolute dynamo on behalf of Culture Night to help to create this one happen. Um, I'd like to thank you guys for being enthusiastic and interested in this and um, stick around. Thanks a lot for everything.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.